Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henley, and this is The Guardian's Brexit Means podcast, trying to make sense of the essentially nonsensical, and that's being polite, since approximately June 2016. Well, that was quite a fortnight, wasn't it? The summer was pretty quiet, all in all, bar the odd ominous rumbling from the new Prime Minister, do or die, deal or no deal, come what may, that kind of thing. In short, Britain would be leaving the European Union on October the 31st, whatever the circumstances. But now suddenly... It looks like we may not be, after all. Perhaps. Parliament has rushed through in double-quick time a piece of legislation obliging Boris Johnson to seek another Brexit extension, something, of course, that he has sworn he would rather die in a ditch than do. MPs have also denied the PM permission to hold the early elections he so desperately wants, which is a problem, because he now finds himself with a majority of minus 41 Although that may not matter very much at this precise moment, because last Monday he suspended Parliament for five weeks, in the middle of arguably the most momentous couple of months in the country's history since the Second World War. And as we speak, the Prime Minister is in Luxembourg, telling Jean-Claude Juncker, the President of the European Commission, that he will not be asking for an extension at the next EU summit, and he won't accept one if the EU offers it either. Confused? You have every right to be. All that's really clear is that Brexit has kicked off again with a vengeance, and here to tell us what happened exactly, what it all means, and where it might go next are three people who know more about it than most. Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland, here and after to be called Johnny, because we are in fact three Johns round this table today. Uh, Jonathan Liss of the think tank British Influence, and on the line from Brussels, Guardian correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Hello. Uh, so, hi, um, John uh, Uthun. <laughs> uh, let's start with the moment Johnson really lit the blue touch paper, shall we? August the 28th, when he announced that he had asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament from September the 9th until October the 14th. And Her Majesty, as she's obliged to do, said yes. Um, I mean, that that really shocked quite a lot of people, didn't it? MPs were outraged. There were spontaneous demonstrations out outside Westminster, lots of other towns around the country. I mean, what was the what was the issue here? What, what, the timing, the length, the motivation, mixture of all three. And there's this whole debate about whether it's actually legal. Right. So to take those in turn, the timing. Um, this is obviously, as you allude to, the greatest crisis since the Second World War. It's uh, no time to be suspending Parliament. It's it's the, the most inappropriate time to be suspending Parliament when we need our representatives more than ever. Um, the length, the longest prorogation mm. in many decades, as uh, as people like Lord Faulkner 
former Lord Chancellor points out, you only need a few days to prorogue, to prepare the Lords. There's, it's completely unjustifiable and indefensible, indeed, to, mm. to, to uh, cancel, shut down Parliament for a period of five weeks, a week longer even than the conference recess period, which no one in the government was able to explain. And then you have the motivation, which is obviously the most important part, which is to stop MPs um, blocking no deal or correctly mm. requesting an extension. And that was obviously, they, they managed to defeat that in the end, but that was clearly the purpose. Mm. If they, they figured that if they, um, the Parliament would have um, two months um, from the end of August, the end of October to stop no deal. And if you take out five weeks, it obviously makes the job much harder. So the, the point about legality is really crucial because... This is a, you know, it might come down to a tension between English law and Scottish law, actually, about mm. whether you can take into account the politics. Mm. But for a judge to say this is a question of politics, you are suspending the only forum, the only political forum to resolve that, mm. which is Parliament. And the crucial question is, if you can, if a government can legally prorogue Parliament on a whim for a period of five weeks, what's to stop it doing so for five no, years? No. And so if, if this isn't a question for uh, the law, then it ought to be. And then really we come to the fundamental point, which is probably a question for a different day, which is that we absolutely are crying out now for a written constitution because we've mm. shown that if you abide by the rules, mm. gentlemen's conventions, we're not governed by gentlemen anymore. And uh, we're not governed by people who abide by the rules of fair play. We need to absolutely insulate the constitution from charlatans who will take us down the route of tyranny right yeah i mean that's a, obviously a much broader point and there are people who you know in, in countries like poland and hungary i think who might argue that you know a written constitution doesn't necessarily save you from from the worst of all evils but any i mean it's as you say probably a question for another day uh johnny um yeah whatever the rights and wrongs it was the it clearly was the signal for the opposition and the, the Tory rebels to really sort of finally get their act together, wasn't it? Uh, quite literally, I suppose, getting an act together. But I mean, I mean, you know, presumably this had all been cooking over the summer. Uh, the Ben Bill, as we now know, it must have been some time in the making. How, how, what's your understanding of how that worked? And, and was it that, that decision to prorogue Parliament, suspend Parliament for five weeks that, that really tipped the, the Tory rebels over the edge? You know, people like Sir Nicholas Soames and Alistair Burt. I mean, really, you know, sort of grand, respected grandees, moderate grandees of the, of the Tory party. Well, you're definitely right that this was going on over the summer on both sides, actually. So the uh, group of, of rebels and a cross-party group of people who were anti-no dealers had been working right up until the summer break and then carried on through it. The Oliver Letwins and Yvette Coopers and Nicholas Bowles, this group of people, some Labour, some Conservative, some independent Conservative, who had more or less made clear they would do anything that the law book, the law, the rule book allowed uh, and particularly the sort of parliamentary procedural mm. rule book, every trick they could to try and stop no deal. So they had been sort of gaming out tactics anyway. On the other side, uh, over in Downing Street, you had a new team in the form of Boris Johnson and particularly his fables chief advisor, Dominic <laughs> Cummings, <laughs> who's, yes. who's a kind of yeah. almost um, mythic figure who hovers <laughs> over all these proceedings. They have, were working out their tactics. And in fact, that's part of the legal case is this, mm. uh, these memoranda uh, that showed they were planning they this in yeah. mid-August yeah. rather than it being some kind of late reaction or spontaneous reaction. The only question where opinion divides is on whether this was all part of some cunning plan by Dominic Cummings or whether it kind of backfired. So... There are two schools of thought. One is 
that he, he and Johnson thought if they announced their proroguing, um, then the Conservative rebels will realise, wow, this lot really mean business and will sort of fold. And that was particularly true about the later threat that came, which was to rob them of the the whip, in effect, because expelling them from the Conservative Party, that that would make them think, well, that would frighten them and that they would then fall into line. Or was it very deliberate? We will provoke them to such an extent that they will um, break away and that will give us the loss of the parliamentary majority and the sort of breakup of the Conservative Party will give us this pretext to say, well, look, everything's falling apart. We must go to a general election. And so that's where opinion divides. Was it, you know, cock up or conspiracy? conspiracy. Uh, And that's really uh, the, the divided opinion. But as it played out, I think prorogation was so shocking to people for the for the reasons that uh, Jonathan has said that it just felt as if uh, a convention that had held for decades and decades was now being trampled on that it made those rebels think well you know what we've we're we're now going to draw the line not just about Brexit actually this is now something bigger yes. almost at yes. stake this is which about is, democracy this yeah. is about democracy it's about the rule of law it's about our conventions it's about our liberal democratic norms you know a lot of people think democracy just means the election and you get the right to vote in or out it doesn't it means this whole panoply of conventions and institutions independent judiciary and the rule of law and independent press which shore up our democracy and that actually you referred to you know Hungary and Poland those things are under assault there I think there was a, a quite, and what I hear is a whole lot of those Tory rebels thought, well, now a line has been drawn. Yeah. And it stiffened their resolve. And I can't really believe, however much we buy the evil genius Cummings narrative, that that was really what he wanted, because it's it's not played brilliantly well for them. And there were other ways to get the kind of general election if you wanted it without breaking away 21 members of your own party, including some of the more trusted figures in the party, people who are seen as figures of integrity. Churchill's um, grandson. I'm Churchill's not... grandson is not a headline you want. If you're a Churchill tribute act, which Boris Johnson basically yes. is, um, you don't really love the idea that Churchill's grandson saying, I can't be in your party anymore. Well, there was only one way of uniting Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Swinston, Nicholas Soames, and they managed it. So I, I think that's that leads yeah. to cock up yeah. over conspiracy. Rather than the conspiracy. Okay, yes, well, be that as it may, Jennifer, uh, I mean, that, that announcement, that prorogation announcement didn't go down very well in Brussels, did it? Maybe maybe not officially, but there were noises from the EU27, words like sort of sinister and reckless being, being banded around. And of course, EU ambassadors had already been told earlier in the summer that, that Johnson's core scenario was now no deal. Um, did that? Did, did that sort of that that decision to suspend Parliament comfort them in that assessment? Do you think? I think it very much confirmed that assessment, and the the decision to prorogue Parliament really did shock people here, even to the extent that you I mean, you, you talk about the official reaction, but people were not uh, particularly veiled or, or, or diplomatic about sort of hiding their their true feelings. And as you say, people said this was sinister. They said it was reckless. But a French minister talking about what kind of disease is being sort of hidden under under this plan. Uh, Boyko Borisov the the Prime Minister of Bulgaria saying, "Well, you know, if I had done something like this, there would be outrage all over Europe." And uh, and I and I think again and again, people were coming back to this glaring contradiction between a referendum that was predicated on the slogan "Take Back Control" and yet the Johnson um, the Johnson government's aim of, of shutting up Parliament. So I think people were, were genuinely shocked about um, about that decision. But also, it did fuel the the feeling that. The government is not serious about getting an agreement 
with the EU and is really set on a course for, for no deal. And I think over the last few weeks, EU officials have been really sort of wavering um, between these, these two polls. There's real uncertainty about whether the government is serious about trying to get a Brexit agreement before the 31st of October. There was more optimism at, uh, when Boris Johnson met EU leaders. He met Angela Merkel in Berlin, then Emmanuel Macron in Paris. But after that, that very short period at the end of August, that, that optimism quickly evaporated. And a lot of that was to do with the prorogation of Parliament and this sense that for the, the EU, that Boris Johnson is really playing the blame game. Uh, and, uh, and even now, that remains a question for people. Is he serious about the talks that are going on in Brussels? Hmm. Right. Um, Jonathan, uh, so parliamentary war was effectively declared. Uh, the rebel alliance, as it's now seems to have been called, won control of the Commons agenda and it pushed through, they pushed through their bill, which is basically all about avoiding a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st. Can you, can you explain, uh, you know, in, in, in terms that, that, that everybody can understand what the bill, which is now, obviously it's now law, no, no longer a bill, actually requires? And, and is it legally watertight and it, and how significant beyond that do you think it was that, that i mean this was really the first time that uh you know anti no dealers or and remainers on both sides of the house really got it and spoke with one voice really i mean th- is that a significant moment well to take your last point first mm. absolutely um i have been uh you know a campaigner for non-tribal politics um, for a long time and I wrote a piece for The Guardian that on the day that uh, Corbyn and Swinson and the others first met to say this is how politics should be done and wouldn't it be ironic if Brexit finally made us European after all because this is absolutely <laughs> a very European approach on con- in continental yeah. Europe this mm. you know this idea of getting round a table mm. with your opponents is revolutionary here and mm. absolutely standard mm. and expected in most countries mm. in Europe So I think that it would be a great shame to revert to tribalism now because we've seen what can be achieved when politicians do in fact put their party, the immediate party interests to one side in the national interest, which is what Corbyn, Swinston and the rest did when they first um, grouped together to stop no deal, which is obviously in their party interest too, but then to stop crucially that early election, uh, which which I think we'll come back to later. So in terms of what the deal does... It uh, requires that if Johnson has not come back with a deal by the 19th of October, which has been approved by Parliament in a meaningful vote, then he is legally compelled to request an extension. And, contrary to what you were suggesting earlier about Johnson said he wouldn't accept it, he is also compelled by that legislation to accept the extension request if it is approved by the EU. Hmm. So his only way around it is if the EU does not approve that request for some reason. And that is why we have this absurd spectacle of people like Daniel Kavczynski MP trying to <laughs> lobby, off to trying to lobby to, the Polish yeah, government yeah, to, well. to veto the request or saying maybe Orban will veto, which has become the new German car manufacturers. Maybe they'll bail us <laughs> out. Maybe Orban will, will put the face of Boris Johnson over the fate of, uh, sort of thousands of Hungarian citizens in, his, in Britain is who it, obviously are depending on a deal. Is it legally watertight? I mean, there does seem to be some debate that there might be a way, there might be ways around it. I mean, the government certainly seems 
determined to challenge it. So it is an act of parliament which makes it the law of the land. So um, Joe Morm, who's mm. sort of a brilliant QC, um, wrote a blog post a couple of days ago where he suggested there was only one way around it for the government, which is if the government puts um, a meaningful vote to parliament by the 19th of October, but then does not put forward a withdrawal agreement bill which would enact that in law before the 31st of October. So Parliament would have improved, would have approved uh, a deal on paper and the but, meaningful vote, but votes, not actually, but, but not passed, it actually into passed into law. But I mean, that that seems to me absurd that the government, the government doesn't want no deal if it has a deal. Mm. If it comes back with a deal, which Parliament approves, there's no earthly reason. It has reason. every interest in there's, getting it has through. every reason, yeah. every interest in getting it through. So I, I don't see that as the as the most important point. What I do think is is more interesting in this is that Johnson and Cummings, their arrogance is really hoist them by their own petard. Because what you now have is uh, a scenario where you have to, Parliament has to approve this deal by the 19th of October, which is a Saturday. So they've now prorogued Parliament. So Parliament doesn't come back until the 14th, 14th. of October, which is incredibly clever of them. So now you've got the Queen's speech on that Monday. Then you've got two days of Queen's speech debates, which can't be interrupted to have a meaningful vote. Then you have the EU summit, which takes you sort of Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And then are you expecting Parliament to scrutinise the new bill, which would be agreed at that summit and then vote it through on a Friday or (laughs) a Saturday? Saturday. That is palpably absurd. You need plenty of time to scrutinise it. And that means hilariously that even if Johnson were to return from that EU summit with a deal parliament would not be able to scrutinize and approve it by the date specified in that law which means that you would have to request the extension extension anyway anyway. and that is that is a morality tale if nothing else (laughs) that's very smart okay um Johnny um that's all in the future of course and we'll come to that in a moment but from I mean just looking back at what's happened over the last couple of weeks that that from that first vote uh it was very clear that the to, to, in which the rebel alliance sort of took control of the of the timetable it was very clear that the government had lost that battle wasn't it 20, 21 conservative rebels voting for the ben bill and they kept voting for it throughout that week how significant now you mentioned this earlier but was i mean this this threat to withdraw the whip was that significant in sort of stiffening their resolve and and also the reaction of many of their colleagues after uh, they were effectively kicked out of the parties. People like Nicholas Soames and Ken Clark. I mean, real, you know, giants of the party. Resignation of of Joe Johnson, the Prime Minister's brother, and then Amber Rudd. I mean, is this a? I mean, this looks like a very, very fundamental split in the Conservative Party as we've known it. It is. I mean, that's why historians are going back to the repeal of the Corn Laws and all these famous moments in British history when political parties have split, because it does feel uh like a moment on a on that scale and that's partly because of the the people who are breaking and they are not people uh who were prone to this kind of behavior and indeed it wasn't anticipated they would do it so part of the narrative of the of of conservative party politics for a long time had been that they headbangers the sort of ultras were on the right of the party they were the eurosceptics mm. in the 
around Jacob Rees-Mogg and the the ERG, the European Research Group, and they called themselves Spartans. These were the people who, you know, you could imagine sort of Jonestown style, you know, (laughs) would would, would resort to the most extreme methods rather than compromise. You know, it was part of their own image, hence the sort of Spartans language. On the other side were these Remainers who were terribly reasonable and would make proposals and then would very often be bought off. And now Mm. it's hard to go back through the weeds of all these different rebellions that never were. But there were these moments, you know, you might remember when Dominic Grieve ended up talking against his own amendment because the the, uh, party... Uh, whips the government, Theresa May then, had reassured him that it was no need for him mm. to be advancing this thing. So for a long time, there was this idea that there were the sort of naughty kids who were in the ERG who really didn't mind smoking, be, you know, in front of <laughs> behind the bike sheds. And then there were the sort of SWAT remainers at the front of the class <laughs> who hated even when the teacher sort of gave them less than 10 out of 10 and yeah. sort of and wanted always to yeah. be in the teacher's good books. And that was what I think Cummings and the others were relying on was the idea there would be a threat that, look, if you do this... Mm you won't be your monitor's bad, your prefect's badge will be removed from you, and in fact you'll be kicked out of the party altogether. Surely they would fold in that situation. And yet, I think the combination of this and the prorogation, Mm. the suspension that we were talking about earlier, put steel in their spine and made them think, actually, this is now a line has been crossed, and once you've rebelled against that once, even in your own mind, Mm. actually, once you've sort of broken that taboo and decided... I am not loyal to a prime minister. There's a a certain freedom. There's a freedom that comes. I won't be loyal to a prime minister who's ready to trample up the constitution, trample on the constitution like this, and do this kind of Orban-style move of suspending parliament. Brackets. We know Orban has not even dared to do that. Trump has not tried to send the U.S. Congress home. You know, what it was very freeing. Um, because they thought, I do not want to be Mm. part of this, and I think they're very sensitive to Mm. the kind of judgments of history, and they've egged each other on. So can they, you had can they come back from this? I think they can under perhaps under, under a new leader they would be prepared because they're, they're, they've got this line which is I haven't left the Conservative Party the Conservative Party has left me. Apart from Sam uh, Gima who's crossed over to the Lib Dems and Philip Lee another one who's done the same Nicholas Bowles is an independent the rest of them are in this kind of limbo where I think they're ready to say if the Conservative Party comes back to its senses we're there. But the other thing that it did of course was that it took a situation where the Conservative Party had a minority of one and then zero, down into a place where they're now in a ne- into deep <laughs> negative territory. Minus 43 is now the Tory party majority. And that too is freeing because it means, look, we're not in a position where my one vote is the difference in the government falling. Off. They've lost, thrown mm-hmm. away their majority anyway. It's not my fault. They kicked me out. I didn't leave. It, you know, in all kinds of human psychology ways, it misread this particular group of people because once they were cast out, it was much easier for them than being forced to walk out. And that's uh, in effect what happened. Uh, I also think their commitment, and they couldn't have advertised it more clearly, for a long time they had said that no deal was the last straw. They were prepared to swallow Brexit, even though they're Remainers, many of them had voted for it. But they did believe it was a national and would be a national calamity. And they, I think, uh, you know, in their own conversations with each other, crystallised that view. They made each other think this ju- history will judge us if we are, uh, if if we are culpable for the inflicting this kind of wound on the country. Yeah, we yeah. cannot, you know, look ourselves in the eye and do it. And in a way, Johnson and Cummings made that easier for yes, us. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Jennifer, uh, of course, while all this was going on, uh, Boris Johnson himself uh, was assuring anybody who'd listen that talks 
with the EU were making very great progress. I mean, it, was that really the case? What I mean, what was being discussed? Um, presumably the Northern Ireland backstop. That seems to be what he's now referring to as the landing zone. Uh, and were any concrete proposals being made? And how has the EU responded to these sort of claims from from uh, from the prime minister that it all's going swimmingly? Well, the EU response um, is rather sceptical. And we are seeing a, a pattern in, in the Boris Johnson premiership that the, the prime minister gives an interview or writes a newspaper column, declares great progress is being made. Then the EU side points out, well, actually, um, very little progress, if any, is really happening. The talks continue and then um, there's the same cycle starts again. And that's pretty much where we are. But um, but to get into some of the details, so Boris Johnson's uh, special envoy for Brexit, David Frost, has been coming to Brussels. He's now meeting EU officials twice a week and they are getting into the, the nitty gritty of um, what the UK hopes will be a replacement for the Irish backstop. There's still that same question is uh, the, the main stumbling block in Brexit. But again, we're running into all the same problems that Theresa May's uh, a negotiator also also had in Brussels. Um, while EU officials would say, OK, there, there are sort of signs of, of halting progress here and there. For one thing, they do think it's a, a positive sign that now Boris Johnson is talking about an all-Irish agri-food zone. They think that would... That's certainly a step in the right direction, but yet even on this area, there's still so many different, so many difficult technical issues to be resolved. And and as far as officials are concerned, they're only really starting to get into the substance just in the, the very latest meeting, and still, you know, a million miles away from getting uh, very very serious proposals on this and yet that's only one aspect of a potential backstop replacement the the uh, the UK want to tear up the the backstop entirely they want to get they don't want to be in any uh, northern ireland to be in an eu customs zone and that's also a big problem for the eu because uh, that leaves open the risk that you'll have uh, dangerous goods or maybe the, those chlorinated chickens coming into to european markets so it's exactly the same issues that to Theresa May was facing and no one is is frankly very optimistic about finding a solution that's eluded everyone for two years about finding that solution in the next few weeks so I think um, there certainly doesn't there isn't a, a, a sense of any momentum in the talks officials are, are very pessimistic and and you get a rather withering response when uh, from them when you hit when you when they uh, look at what the Prime Minister is saying about the great progress that's being Definitely. made. It's certainly not the reality yeah, on yeah, the ground. Yeah, um, Jonathan, just uh, briefly, um, you know, that, so that the the, uh, the 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 Ben Bill went through. Obviously, um, that October thirty first uh, crash out sort of seemingly averted. Though, although you know, as we heard, Johnson clearly thinks that it hasn't been but he lost another two votes at six consecutive defeats in his first week as, as as prime minister on motions for an early election uh as well now uh the op- the opposition and the tory rebels kind of hesitated for a while on yeah. the timing of this didn't they um but in the end it looks like it seems like their sort of distrust of the prime minister led them to refuse any date that would allow him even the sort of faintest chance of going to the polls before that extension had been sort of guaranteed what did they i mean they they what did they fear well 
what they were saying publicly was um, they couldn't trust Johnson to keep the date because they thought that, you know, under prime ministerial prerogative, he might have been able to schedule it for after the 31st of October, which obviously would have been a democratic travesty. Um, there was also the very reasonable case that why would they surrender control to the prime minister to dictate the timetable when, uh, when they had the power to do it themselves, thanks to the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. But really, it was more complicated than that. Um, there was the moral imperative to thwart no deal, but there was also the political imperative to thwart the prime minister. So if you had if you had an election on, say, the 15th of October, that would have given the prime minister a chance to tear up the legislation the day after that election, for example, mm. which would have taken us down the road to no deal. So obviously that had to be averted. But crucially, if you allow an election for, for after 31st of October... You force Johnson to request an extension and it's, you know, Samson having his hair cut off. It's the essential pledge of his premiership has been has been sort of uh, stymied. Yes. And he is fatally weakened and Farage then moves in for the kill yes. because uh, because uh, Johnson hasn't delivered has on his do or die yeah. pledge. Mm. And um, it's on his essential do or die sine qua non pledge leave on 31st October. Mm. So it suited all the opposition parties yes, perfectly to, to do that. Mm. OK, Johnny, um, so let's let's look now at where where things might go from now. Where, where the, I mean, Johnson, him, and he is in something of a bind, is he not? Uh, so because he, he, let's just recap: he's legally obliged if he hasn't already come back with a deal to ask for that extension at the next at the next EU summit, and uh, unable to call elections that might kind of you know get his back off the wall a, a little bit. Where, so I mean, where is his room? Does he have any room for manoeuvre? Uh, I mean, is there? Let's let's start with maybe that this idea that there might be room for a deal, uh, and that Jennifer just described, you know, where where that landing zone in theory might lie, uh, and she said why in practical terms from the EU side it's not looking very likely, but from the British end of things, um, you know, we know that EU aren't going to ditch the backstop. There is this talk of this kind of nor- you know Northern Ireland only, you know, sort of basically a border down the down the middle of the Irish of the Irish Sea. Um, what's going about? What about the you know the, the, up until now? It's been the sort of the D, the Ulster Unionists and the DUP that have been blocking that. Uh, with the hardliners in the ERG who 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 were you know presumably are going to want to hold out for no deal. It's that's not politically yes. achievable here. So yes, it? let's assume he gets over the small matter of twenty seven European yes. countries agreeing to this plan. Could exactly. it fly politically? It, it, could he get it through Westminster? So it has great appeal for him politically because, as Jonathan was saying, his whole you know, secret of his powers for him is that he delivers on what he promised. Mm. And so if he gets us out before October 31st with a deal, he's complying with the law because they didn't want him to do no deal, uh, and he's satisfying his promise. So it's got suddenly much more appeal politically than it would have had before. And let's say, incredibly, the 27 countries agree, and they say, you know, well, we offered you a Northern Ireland-only backstop first at the start. start. And you were the ones who didn't want it, but all right, if you, you know, you can have it. Can he get that through? Uh, The problem had always been held to be the DUP mm. that the, the you know the the most ultra of the unionist parties in Northern Ireland would somehow say we can't have a border down the Irish Sea because then symbolically you are cutting off treating differently Northern Ireland from the from Britain from the rest of the UK and that violates our unionist mm. principle um, we should note that as they say that and the DUP have said that they are at odds with Northern Ireland itself that Northern mm. Ireland itself voted 
They're not representative of... of They're not representative. Northern Ireland voted Remain. Mm. And actually, plenty of people in Northern Ireland would think this is a pretty great deal Mm. because still in the UK, but we've got this special protected status as an enclave that is in effect within the EU. And you can imagine lots of businesses relocating to Belfast, etc. So from from uh, from Northern Ireland's point of view, good, but not the DUP. Uh, I would say there's a couple of things about that 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 means you shouldn't presume they're they're an insurmountable uh, uh, obstacle. The first is that they themselves realise that they will really be on the hook with their own electorate if they are blamed for no deal, which would really hurt Northern Ireland very badly, very quickly. So they do want a deal and they are known as being hard-headed and and pretty extreme, but also practical people Mm. and pragmatic. So they could fold. But the other thing is that's changed is this minus 43 minority yeah. thing. Because suddenly the DUP don't they have... Don't matter so They much. don't matter quite so much yeah. because, in a way, you know, he's trashed everything. Mm. So whereas before it was so delicate and those 10 votes really made all the difference, well, now if you're in minus 43, mm. they can't help you mm. anyway. In that situation, it's freer for Boris Johnson to say, look, I've written them off. I can't get mm. it through with them. Frankly, I've probably written off the ERG and Jacob Rees-Mogg's crowd as, as well. well. They will also vote against it. Now, can he turn to the others, the Labour leavers, mm. crucially, 30 or 40 or more, of those MPs, the people around, you know, Stephen Kinnock with his mm. MPs for a deal mm. group and others, and somehow get them to come on side? Does the sheer terror of no deal, if that becomes more and more realistic and or more and more imminent a prospect, and we take the mm. point about the law... Does that suddenly become a, a, a least worst scenario for particularly those Labour MPs who I hear often just saying, this is such a nightmare. My constituents, the thing that they would uh, prefer or could live with is just some just kind of deal, get it deal, over get with. It over with. Yes. And the scenario I would imagine is Jeremy Corbyn saying that I'm against this, it's a terrible, very bad deal, but a nod and a wink mm. to 30 or 40 Labour backbenchers to say, of course, I if can't be responsible to. for yes for what you do if you follow your conscience, would enough of them do it, overwhelming the objections of, yes, the DUP and uh, uh, the ERG? And would even enough DUPers with a bit of a nod and a wink also sort of hint that this is the best outcome? I think they, you know, if no deal is still a real, realistic threat, there could be particularly Labour MPs who do find themselves in that zone. In that position. Jonathan, very just a Just a very quick mm. sort of addendum to that is that the wild, the wild card here might be the DUP preferring Remain over a Northern Ireland only backstop because they know that no deal would obviously take them towards the United Ireland and also shatter Northern Ireland, as, as Johnny was saying. And uh, a Northern Irish backstop, not only would there be those borders in the Irish Sea, but you'd also exempt Northern Ireland from GB trade deals, which have a real psychological effect. So you'd have a United Ireland sort of economically, and that would also create a psychological momentum potentially towards United Ireland, whereas Remain is the only way that guarantees the status quo. And you might even find, if it did come down to no deal versus revoke, the the, the votes on that would be extremely balanced in the House. It's so interesting. And the Northern Ireland, um, the DUP have hinted at that. Mm. Before, they've, they've more or less said that, you know, if a deal is so bad, we'd rather remain. That for them, remain is better than a bad deal, deal. rather than no yes, deal. Really, exactly. So that, that is, that's potentially there. That's and, really interesting. Um, I mean, Jennifer, I mean, if there was the remotest prospect of such a deal getting through Parliament, would the would the I mean, as John as Johnny was saying, you know, this this was the the EU's original solution to the Irish border problem, wasn't it? Would would the would the EU twenty seven jump at it if there was a prospect of it getting through British Parliament? 
Oh, absolutely. In a heartbeat, I think, because this was always the the model that the EU preferred because the the, the all UK customs union they negotiated with Theresa May was was seen uh, as not really very comfortable for for other EU member states. It was potentially giving the the UK advantages that it that in the EU's view it shouldn't have as a as a non-member state. So I think people would be would be would be absolutely ready to go for that option. Would pull out all the stops on the EU side to make. Sure or it got ratified in time but it's the big question for them is is this is this going to go through parliament and yes. as we've just been discussing i mean that's like that is, no that is certain. very hard to yeah, see and yeah. that's why people are enormously skeptical about that they're hopeful that boris johnson will move in this direction but they're not convinced that even if he does he has the numbers behind him Okay, Um, we need to speed up a little bit. Uh, There's a couple of other possible scenarios that I want to get through if we can. Um, Jonathan, uh, another potential scenario. um, Johnson just decides to break the law, right? Or at least to sort of test it to absolute breaking point in the courts. In theory, he could then take the UK out on the 31st without a deal if he just ignores the law, call an early election. Um, I mean, and that has the political advantage, does it not, that it would basically wipe out the the Brexit party, presumably? Look, I mean, how much is Johnson prepared to break here? Mm. I I mean, we have to go back to to basics in in a way. How could a a prime minister break the law? And people, look, the the fact that we're even having this conversation is extraordinary in itself. Mm. But of course... But there's people going on the radio uh, saying that he should. Absolutely. And that (laughs) is why why people like Jay Morm have have sort of game-planned this scenario. And there is already a court case pending um, forcing, which would force Johnson to obey the law. And if he were to decline to enforce it, then they'd go to the high court... Uh, which would obviously find in favour of the the claimants very very quickly, uh, which would inf- which would force him to to obey the law, and then any Supreme Court um, appeal would be heard after the thirty first October. So I think it's reasonably certain that a UK government would uh, abide by the rule of law, particularly when it comes from the party which is meant to be the party of law and order. After when all. you say though that a High Court would issue a ruling and that would force him to obey the law, I'm just reminded here, you know, when Donald Trump early on in his presidency was hearing about the Supreme Court orders about his travel ban, he said, well, who, who, who does the Supreme Court have? Do they have police? Do they have soldiers? Do they've got a few marshals? Are they armed? He was asking these questions in the White House because he said, how do they enforce it? Yeah. I'm the uh, executive president here. I've got the army. How do they force me to do anything? And I just think there's a version of this in the Johnson calculus as well, which is the court can issue an edict. Who enforces it? Dominic Grieve has no troops. You know, in the end, this is why some constitutional or legal scholars are getting worried about the role of the queen, because they think yeah. ultimately it could come down to the palace to remove him from office for breaking the law. It's a nightmare for them. They never want to get involved in politics. She's like already that. involved though now, isn't she? Now she's probably been brought into the by the prorogation. But it's a, this is the kind of crazy territory we're in here, just which is that we're talking about this it is just just that alone but but there is another there is another theory here and perhaps jennifer can talk about this as well which is that the eu could step in and say well we've we've taken note of the of the act of parliament and we therefore consider it um the uk law that we have that a request to extend has been made and take it from there oh that's interesting jennifer is that i mean what is parliament i mean it Surely the the EU can only take note of the people who are sitting at the table of the Council of Ministers, or or yes, I mean my sense is that for the EU this would be just as much as a uh, of a constitutional nightmare as it would be for the Queen, 
because they really don't want to get involved at all in, in a British constitutional crisis. And it is interesting to, to note that in our, the text of Article 50 itself points out that any member state leaves in line with its own constitutional requirements. But if those constitutional requirements are under under challenge, then, then what does that mean for the EU that has to take a decision on the extension? I mean, my, my, my gut feeling is that the EU could only respond to, to that request to, to extend Article 50 coming from the Prime Minister. So even if Johnson turned up at this summit with his sort of with the letter in his pocket, but his fingers crossed behind his back saying, actually, I don't really want this extension. I think the EU would have to respond to the legal text of what um, uh, of what, what was the UK government was mm. asking for. But I think that would be that really for the EU, that's a whole sort of constitutional can of worms that they would really dread really to, rather be, not go there. to be opening. Yeah. Yes. OK. Uh, Johnny, another another couple of scenarios. Well, it's scenario number three. Um, rather than breaking deciding to break the law, he could decide to break his promise, couldn't he? Um, he swears he wouldn't, obviously. Uh, he'd rather die in a ditch than do that. But he could go to Brussels and request an extension through gritted teeth. And then immediately call an election, and that I mean, the, there are advantages in him to him for that, are there not? That he he could then sort of count, you know, he he would run presumably some kind of viciously anti-EU kind of people versus Parliament nightmare of a of a campaign uh, to sort of help him see off the Brexit party. Um, and that, but you know, but there, would there be a threat? That, I mean, if 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 there was a united opposition promising a second referendum, that would be a. Th- I mean, is there? How do you see? Yeah, this is where it would go political rather than legal, uh, yeah. and it would all be about how he frames it and how, could he communicate him doing this extension. How can he dramatize the gritted teeth nature of that? Could he find a way where he sends a deputy to do it or some other way that he doesn't look as if he did this thing that would enable Farage to say, look, he's like all the others. Boris Johnson has broken his promises. He needs to find a political grammar to to convey to the electorate that I didn't really break my promise. Somehow I was so reluctant. It's them who made me do it. It's their fault. It's their fault. They made me do it. And for that to be believable and plausible. And and if they can frame it that way, that indeed could be. It's not the best basis for them. They wanted to go in saying, look, we've delivered Brexit. Let's have an election. But if he could say and frame it as they've made me do this thing this shows you why you must give me a mandate people versus parliament then it's a battle and he'll have potential platform he'd have the tory eurosceptic press agreeing with him Mm. and making corbyn and joe swinson the Mm. villains but he would have other people including all the opposition saying Mm. look and and potentially farage Mm. saying he's a promise breaker you can't believe he word he says so it would then be a real bear fight to um uh, about how we uh, how he frames and defines this action that he has vowed he would not never do. ever. I mean, do. no politician wants to be in that. Read my lips. Yes, George <laughs> Bush, yes. nineteen ninety two yeah. situation. Yeah. They do not want to be in that, yeah. and it would require great political skill to somehow turn to, that to, to his advantage. To extricate himself yeah. from it, Jennifer. Just very very briefly, uh, because we're all saying you know the EU would grant an extension. I mean, there are there there are. It's hard to imagine the EU saying no to extension if it was if if that request was 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 properly made. And, and properly justified is that is that right I think so. I think through gritted teeth there would be a, a short extension, but you can't underestimate the 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 frustration, even the anger with how the UK has used the last few months ever since Donald Tusk uh, announced the last extension, saying "Do not waste this time." There are people who are much more sympathetic to the point of view of Emmanuel Macron, who who was always very strict on 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 that, and and I think we will hear more tough language from him how he doesn't want an extension. But I think at the end of the day. 
as you say, the EU don't want to be seen as facilitating no deal. They don't want to be seen as pushing the UK out of the door. Mm. Okay, John, uh, Jonathan, sorry, one, uh, the final possibility uh, of the kind of four potential scenarios that might play out. Um, Ed Johnson getting kicked out, essentially. I mean, he could, for example, push hell for leather for a no deal and get ejected in a in a no confidence vote. Um, how might that he would step down then and then there's a there's talk about possibly another leader you know a, a sort of more consensual one than Jeremy Corbyn presumably so, so you know Ken Clark's name has been mentioned for example but you know who would take over at the head of some kind of temporary administration whose sole purpose would be to go and ask the EU for another extension then there'd be elections after that is that a is that a possible goer yeah, I suppose we get into the the weeds of how of how technically it might work because if you have if you have you know fourteenth of October is when Parliament comes back, you have a fourteen day cooling off period after any vote of no confidence. If the Brexit day is the thirty first of October, um, and that's the fourteenth, fourteen days is the twenty eighth of October, and presumably the law will already have required whichever Prime Minister is at the European Council to have uh, requested that extension. I mean, when the Prime Minister goes to resign uh, or, is, or is kicked out, I mean, so there are, there are, so there are two options here, aren't there? Because either he resigns, he, could resign, yes. he resigns rather than go. That was That's one way of keeping the mm. pledge, so you'd never request extension. Mm. Who does he ask to take over? Does he ask Rob, the first Secretary of State, who presumably also wouldn't request that extension? Or does he um, ask you know, Corbyn, who presumably immediately um, faces a, a no-confidence request, but presumably Corbyn is <laughs> then has another 14 days, so by which time Corbyn's gone to Brussels. So the, the point is that we have an Act of Parliament which means that if there is not a deal on the table, which has been voted through by Parliament on the 19th of October, a request has to be made. So there has to be a Prime Minister. Whoever it is has to follow the law. So even if Johnson has resigned and someone else, whoever it is on the Tory side or a centrist, has taken over, they have to request that extension. And presumably in those chaotic circumstances, the EU would say... Just have have a few months to have that election, and then obviously then we'd have the same people versus parliament election yes. on Trump grounds. Yeah. Uh, the, the people versus parliament, people versus the judiciary, mm. people versus yeah, MPs. Yes. Yes. That's yes. going to be ugly as hell. Just, just very briefly, we're about to conclude, but jo- just um, Johnny, uh, Jonathan mentioned the judiciary. There's a wild card here, isn't there, uh, which is the Supreme Court this tomorrow, this week, uh, ruling on the question of prorogation. How, what influence might that it has a very big influence because if the uh, Supreme Court, when it gathers, agrees with the court in Scotland that it was I- illegal, uh, unlawful for Boris Johnson to suspend Parliament sort of arbitrarily like that, then the logic is that he they will have to unsuspend Parliament and Parliament will come back almost immediately. And therefore, all these narrow windows of t- t- timelines we've been talking about would change because Parliament would be sitting. Uh, that's possible. On the other hand, if those same judges, those nine Supreme Court judges say, and this is what a few legal scholars I've been speaking to fear will happen, that Boris Johnson's move was cynical and dishonest and awful, but But not illegal, then what is to stop him just thinking, I'll do it again? And on October the 14th, proroguing for another two weeks. 
and then just making moot all the things that uh, Jonathan's been talking about. So they are really worried about that. Scenario. That's the nuclear option. That is a hugely nuclear option, but we have been in the Then it still comes back to fo- having to follow the law. Even if you prorogue Parliament yes, on the 14th of October again, you still have to follow the law. He would, the but there would be no mechanism really to enforce it. No votes of no confidence, nothing else. So these, the are, these are the things yeah. that people are It get, is going to be an out. enthralling <laughs> few weeks. Just before we conclude, I'm going to do a very quick sort of roundtable. Um, the next edition of Brexit Means will be uh, on October the 14th, roughly a month's time. What will have happened by then, um, do you reckon, Jonathan? Um, either Johnson will have accepted Northern Irish backstop, which will then be uh, sort of put to Parliament, or he'll be on the road to no deal, but it doesn't change the law. OK, Johnny? Yeah, by October the 14th, I don't think it will be any clearer at all. Than it is now. Not, no, than it <laughs> We've is been now. saying that for three I'm years. Afraid, <laughs> in terms of that particular day, and also I really think you cannot game this out or predict it. All you can do is set out the different trees Scenarios. and forks in the road, mm. but I think it's so hard to work out who will take which path. Jennifer, any ideas? I very much echo that. I mean, no one ever lost money by betting on more um, chaos and, and crisis in, <laughs> in this whole process. But I think we will be in a situation where Boris Johnson is under very heavy pressure to, to, to seek that extension in, in Brussels. And with that, creating all sorts of dilemmas for the EU about how to respond and how to treat, um, in the words of Angela Merkel, how to treat the British patient. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, that really is it for this um, more than usually heartening episode. Thank you very much to uh, Jennifer in Brussels, to Jonathan Liss and Jonathan Friedland here in the studio. Brexit Means, as I said, will be back in a little under four weeks' time. In the meantime, please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer unexpectedly, uh, I believe, and but sadly for the last time was Simon Barnard. Um, this was Brexit Memes and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 